Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, we'll be looking at the whole chapter together this morning, all 11 verses. I've entitled the sermon, Beauty for Ashes. The key words for our worshipers in training are crown, robes, and righteousness. Well, friends, it is December 27th. And let's be honest. Some of you weren't sure we'd make it this far. And yet here we are. 2020 is almost over. What a year it has been. Uh, if you don't recall, the very beginning of the year kicked off with some massive fires out in Australia. Those were followed by viruses, government lockdowns, riots, uh, killer hornets at one point, I think. Hurricanes, an extremely tumultuous election, and those are just off the top of my head. We can think of many more. I don't, I don't think I would be going out on a limb here to suggest that this has been a hard year. All years can be hard in their own right, certainly. And while there were definitely good things that happened to each of us this year, It was an objectively hard year, I think. Not just for us, but for the world. Everybody here has faced their own personal struggles with sin and suffering in 2020. We all failed to love God supremely and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We've been confronted with conflict in our marriages, with our children. Many of you have faced loss this year had a loved one or maybe multiple loved ones die. We've struggled intensely with our emotions. We've been face to face with situations that we knew from the beginning we were simply not equipped, at least in ourselves, to face. And not only have we had our personal struggles that we probably could have faced any year of our lives in the past, but we've also seen an overreach, an invasion into our lives by federal, state, and local governments that makes the TSA look like laissez-faire freedom lovers who serve a vital purpose in society. People have been forced inside their homes. Businesses have been destroyed. Our government has racked up more debt this year than perhaps any in history, further robbing our children, of their lives and their futures. Suicide, suicide rates have skyrocketed. Domestic and child abuse numbers are way up. Drug and alcohol abuse is more pervasive than normal. Our loved ones in nursing homes or hospitals have suffered and died alone because we weren't able to see them. Around the world, millions more people will starve to death because of interruptions to supply, supply chain logistics. Fear has been the word of the day. In truth, the toll, both physical and emotional, that these lockdowns will have on us, our children and grandchildren, are untold and impossible to predict in full. I believe we could suggest, to the shock of very few people, that this year may go down in history as one of the most tragic years in history. And as 2021 approaches, 
it doesn't appear that things are going to vastly improve with new lockdowns and mandates coming our way. And yet, before us, in this passage, is a text that speaks a word of hope, a word of light, a word of life. I stand before you this morning with a very simple mission, and a very simple but very powerful message. I am here to proclaim to you the year of the Lord's favor. 2020 may be an objectively awful year for the reasons we mentioned and countless others, but there is a truth here in this text before us, and it stands above and it sounds above the cries of anguish issuing from our hearts. And that message is this, everlasting joy. The book of Isaiah, like the rest of the Old Testament prophets, is primarily about the sinfulness of Old Testament Israel in contrast to the faithfulness of God. Isaiah's name means the Lord is salvation. And that is the essence of Isaiah's ministry and the book before us. Quickly recount with me, if you will, that Isaiah was prophesying about 700 years before the birth of Messiah, around the time of the Assyrian invasion of the ten tribes of Israel, about 120 years before the Babylonian invasion of the two southern tribes. And Isaiah sought to warn people of the coming consequences of their sin, but also to instill hope in their hearts for a better day, a day beyond the suffering right in front of them. In particular, chapters 60 and 61 are closely tied together in a display of the future glory that awaited the people of God and the one who would bring about that blessing to them. Our text, Isaiah 61, 1 through 11, focuses on the person who will bring about the restoration of God's people. It was a hope for them yet in the future, and it's a hope for us that in many ways has already been realized, though there are certainly future components to it. So I'd like to read uh, all 11 verses now, and then we will give a brief outline and get to work. Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, or a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have 
everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give to them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the, Lord, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown to, in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Amen. And so as we look at these verses this morning, I want you to notice three things with me concerning the Messiah's work to restore his fallen people. In the first seven verses, we see that his mission, in short, is to bring everlasting joy to his people. Second, in verses 8 and 9, we see that the motive which sustains this mission is covenantal love. And finally, in verses 10 and 11, we'll see the resulting union of Messiah's work, which is a righteous and a fruitful marriage. First, then look with me at, at verses 1 to 7, and we'll see Messiah's mission to bring everlasting joy to his people. Isaiah 61 begins with Messiah proclaiming that he has been anointed by the Holy Spirit of God for a very special work. According to the first seven verses of Isaiah 61, he is to bring good news to the poor. He is to bind up the brokenhearted. He is to proclaim liberty to those who are in captivity and the opening of prison to those in chains. Furthermore, he is to make known the year of the Lord's favor and the day of his vengeance. He is to comfort those who mourn and give them a crown of beauty, the oil of gladness, and the garment of praise, thus establishing them as oaks of righteousness planted by the Lord himself. They shall be priests to God, eating the wealth of nations, boasting in their glory, receiving a double portion instead of shame and they will rejoice in their lot the end of which is joy everlasting question how does a text like this sit with you right now my guess is that for many of us perhaps we feel a bit of a hollow ring, perhaps. We've said it. Let's face it. Life is hard. And for us in the West, it seems we may be joining the ranks of the persecuted church before long. And yet, that which, is, that which was proclaimed here, that it, what is written down for us here is still true today, just as it was then. There is still good news for the afflicted. The brokenhearted have not been left alone. Those in prison and those who perhaps shall soon be sent there have the great hope of liberty and freedom awaiting them in the Lord. 
brothers and sisters, the Lord has promised lavish gifts for his people. And in Jesus Christ, that is exactly what we get. A crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. And the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. The Lord has planted his people as oaks of righteousness and we shall not be taken down by the howling winds of death and destruction around us. In this blessing of God, the people of God are restored and established as ministers of God. And their lot in the end, our lot, is everlasting joy. Have you forgotten this hope in the midst of your sorrows? You know, often the present trials, the trials of the present, often obstruct our view of the glories of the future. And they also keep us from seeing the good in the present. There have been good things that have happened this year. And above all of them, the Lord has stood by us, and he holds out before us joy. Think of it. Joy. Everlasting joy. That is what awaits you. And more than that, it is what you have been granted, at least in a partial experience, now. Joy is not something that we must simply look forward to one day after we die. Joy is our lot now and forever. We recognize that our experience of joy may only be in part. We still live in a sinful and broken world. But the joy offered to the believer is real. If you are in Christ, you have access to real, everlasting joy. Even in the face of one of the worst years known to man, you are not doomed to misery. You can have and express real, deep, and mature joy. Even if your life seems to be falling apart right now, you are not left hopeless, and alone. You can enjoy abiding, assuring comfort and joy in the company of Jehovah. Consider just a few things from these verses, um, particularly in verse 3 here. What, what would you prefer? Ashes, mourning, and a faint spirit? Or a crown of beauty? The oil of gladness and the garment of praise? If you think about those three things, a crown, an oil, and a garment, they, they tell us things about who we are. A crown, what is it? We are royalty, children of God, children of the King. An oil, you have been washed and renewed and anointed by God's Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life. And a garment. You have been wrapped in the robes of righteousness. And we'll consider that point more particularly in a few minutes. But this, this robe, this garment, which sounds forth with praise unto your Redeemer, brother, friend, Lord Jesus Christ, is yours. You have been set apart 
believer. You are being prepared and fitted not only for the difficulties in this life, but for glory in the next. You see, the weight of glory, if you held it in your hand, as the lyric goes, it would pass right through you. But our sorrows and our sufferings now equip us, prepare us for the eternal weight of glory. And so as we suffer, we realize we do so not alone, but as kings anointed for a purpose, wrapped in righteousness. We are, it says, oaks of righteousness, unshakable, unbreakable, and we have been planted by the Lord himself. And all of this is to the praise of his glory. And the news only gets better from here because this joy, as we've said, shall remain with us far beyond our time here in this life. After all of the sorrow and the suffering that you endure here is over and you close your eyes in death, you will enter into the fullness of joy as you behold your Savior face to face. The worst thing that man can do to you is what? Kill the body. And after that, he has nothing more that he can do to you. Because then you shall be with your Lord. Instead of shame, what do you get? A double portion. Instead of dishonor, you get joy. Everlasting joy. Isaiah says they shall possess a double portion in their land. Well, what land is that? Jesus says that the meek shall inherit the earth. In the eschaton, in the end, when all is said and done in this life, and there's a renewed heavens and a renewed earth, renewed and everlasting joy in God's people as we reign with him on a restored earth. It's all ours. The darkness of the present shall and will in due time give way to the light of eternity, brothers and sisters. And in the meantime, we wait with hope. I think a good illustration of how this works is in the life of John the Baptist. As you likely know, John um, went before the Lord Jesus, preparing the way for him, proclaiming the coming of the Lord. His ministry focused on repentance and, and waking people up and letting them know the king was coming. Well, after this, John gets uh, into a bit of a um, quarrel with King Herod. And Herod's uh, adulterous lover. And because of this, John was cast into prison. And it was at this point that John sends messengers to the Lord Jesus. And he asks him, he says, I'm, I'm in prison. Is this guy the real thing? Jesus, is it you? Is it, are you the one we've been waiting for? Or should we wait for another? His experience wasn't quite lining up with what his theology was telling him. And so he went to the Lord and asked, and Jesus sends the envoy back with this message. He says, tell John, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus' statement here seems to be a, a reference to several passages from the book of Isaiah. Probably chapter 29, verse 18 Chapter 35, verses 4 to 6. Chapter 60, 1 through 3. And chapter 61, verse 1. He says right here, right? The, the good news, have, have, or the poor have good news preached to them. But it's interesting that that's the part of 
Isaiah 61 that he references. Because just below that, Isaiah 61 says that liberty gets proclaimed to the captives, opening a prison to those who are bound. But that is not what he quotes to John. And if you know what happens to John, he was beheaded shortly after this as a gift to Herod's seductive niece. And given this fact, we have a very important question to answer. Why would Jesus say this to John? How is this true for John? Maybe it was true for him, but the last bit of Isaiah 61.1 simply didn't apply to him. Hardly. We have to remember that while the temporary applications of these truths um, for God's people, there are temporary applications, the ultimate fulfillment of these promises comes in the age to come when all sin and shame and death are done away with forever. We can rest in the arms of God having been delivered finally from every evil thing. John was assured by the Lord Jesus of his credentials, and he was offered the hope of eternal life even though he was to remain in prison. And so for us, brother, sister, for all who love the Lord Christ, what awaits you through all of your anguish is nothing but everlasting joy. If you can wait but a little longer, you shall have it. Well, second, look with me then in verses 8 and 9, and we'll see the motive that moves God to give this everlasting joy to his people. That motive is covenantal love. God offers this joy to his people because he loves justice, he hates robbery and wrong, and he loves his people. God will faithfully repay those who loved him in sorrow, and he says he will make an everlasting covenant with them. Covenantal love is that which brings about the everlasting joy of God's people. What is it that motivated the Father to send his Son to die for sinners like us? It was love. What motivated Christ to die for sinners like us? It was love. What motivated the Spirit to anoint and empower the Son to do this? And what motivates the Spirit to anoint and empower us as God's people, sealing us for the day of redemption? Love. Consider this line from Michael Reeves' little book, Delighting in the Trinity. He says, The Father, then, is not about sprinkling blessings from afar, and His salvation is not about being kept at a distance, merely pitied and forgiven by our Creator. Instead, he pours all his blessings out on his son and then sends him that we might share his glorious fullness. The father so loves that he desires to catch us up into that loving fellowship he enjoys with his son. And that means I can know God as he truly is, as father. In fact, I can know the father as my father. This is what motivates God to bestow such blessing on his people. Love. That the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and their love has overflowed in the person of the Spirit, 
who is the bond of love between them, who graciously is poured out on us in redemption. God, because He loves His Son and because He loves us, gives us everlasting joy and brings us. He gives us joy by bringing us into the fullness of fellowship experienced between Father and Son in this everlasting covenant. And this is not a gift given to a small people in a narrow strip of land in the Middle East alone. Verse 9, right? This blessing shall be known and experienced all over the world. God's people shall be known among the nations. They and their children shall be known in the midst of the peoples as those blessed by God. God is not a miser. He's not holding back blessing from you because he wants it or needs it for himself. He doesn't sprinkle blessing from afar, but pours out his love by his Holy Spirit in our hearts. God, according to Jeremiah 2, is a fountain bursting with life and love. God's love for you, believer, is not like the 20 or 30 second light rain showers that we often get here that seem to only make the air muggier. He is a fountain full to the brim, bursting and spilling over with life for the objects of his affection. Consider another quote, this one from the late J.I. Packer. It says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes the thought Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well. See, this covenantal love bestowed on us by God permits us to call him father, our father. And it grants us access into the inner sanctum, not merely to see how holy God is, but how unfathomably kind and gracious He is. My friends, how does that sit with your soul this morning? God loves you. Brother, sister, He loves you. Christian, if you've come here today weighed down with fear, guilt, shame, and sin, I am glad you're here. And I'm glad to tell you, God loves you. He loves you. And He has loved you in this way. The Father sent His Son to die for you. The Son willingly gave up His life for you And the Spirit empowered him to do so. And they all, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have made their home with you. You are loved by our great triune God. And this is so from eternity past to now to eternity future. Would you look with me in the third place then? Verses 10 and 11. We see the end result of Messiah's mission and motive of love. We see a happy and a holy marriage bearing fruit to the glory of God. 
This is where everlasting joy and covenantal love meet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We now get a glimpse of the people's response to Messiah's restorative and reconciling mission. We see it from Isaiah's eyes. It's just as we would expect, unmitigated joy. There's great rejoicing in the heart of the believer as he considers all that God is and has done for him. The responder says here in verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord and exalt in my God. Why? Because he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. The Lord has covered the believer with the robe of righteousness. The wedding has been set. The groom is dressed to the nines and the bride has adorned herself with jewels. Consider the parable from the Lord Jesus about a king who held a wedding feast for his son. At one point, the king comes in to look at the guests, and there he sees a man with no wedding garment. The king asks him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? The man couldn't answer him. The king then commands the servants to bind the man hand and foot and to cast him into outer darkness. You see, the man had tried to sneak in without the required wedding apparel. And so was removed from the wedding and cast into misery. So shall it be for all who attempt to partake of the marriage supper of the Lamb and his bride without the proper apparel. Which leads us to the ever important question. What is this wedding garment? What is the appropriate wedding apparel? Righteousness. Remember in verse 8, God loves justice. He hates wrongdoing. God is perfectly righteous, and so must be those who dwell in his presence. Well, that presents a very serious problem for us. The Bible and our own experience make it emphatically clear we are not righteous, we are sinners, we are broken. We are, as they say, damaged goods. We don't love God with a singular, supreme devotion. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. If we're honest with ourselves, we know we have no hope of making it to this wedding. That is no hope in ourselves. Because notice what the text says Next, in the second part of verse 10. God has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. God himself shall provide us with the vestments that we need to attend the wedding. And yet, even better than that, we are not invited to this wedding as mere guests. Onlookers to a union otherwise of no major significance to us. We are, as God's people, the bride who has adorned herself with jewels, who is loved by her bridegroom and covered by his righteousness. The husband loves the wife and has lavished riches and goodness upon her. This righteousness is not something we could obtain on our own. We are helpless without it and helpless to get it. 
So where does the garment come from? It is the very vesture of Messiah, Messiah himself. Jesus, the Lord of verse 10, the Lord of verse 8, and the me of verse 1, left the glory of heaven to proclaim good news to those who are afflicted. In Luke chapter 4, we read of the time when Jesus entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he read from the prophet Isaiah. He, he unrolled the scroll and found this passage, Isaiah 61. He read it. He handed the scroll back to the attendant. He sat down and said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. How's that for a sermon? How is it? that the Lord can impart such righteousness to his people. We left the glory of heaven, we said. He assumed human flesh. He lived on this earth for 30-some-odd years in perfect obedience to the will and law of God. And he did this in the place of sinners like you and me. And while his righteous life should have resulted in nothing but eternal life and glory and praise for him, he willingly accepted torture and death, and more significantly, estrangement from God. The wages of sin, remember, according to the scriptures, is death. And so sinners, like us, deserve death. We don't deserve life. We don't deserve health. We don't deserve any good thing. We deserve, as we've said, death and hell. Christ deserved life. And yet he bore the just deserts of our sin so that we might be granted the just deserts of his sinlessness. This is the great exchange, my sin for his righteousness. He became sin so that he could clothe me in his righteousness. This, friends, was planned in love by the Father, performed in love by the Son, and applied to me and to you in love by the Holy Spirit. And once again, we see in verse 11, like we saw in verse 9, this is to the praise of the glory of God among the nations. God shall, in his goodness to his people, cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Allow me, then, to make two brief final appeals here. One to my brothers and sisters here in the Lord, and one to any here this morning who may not know the Lord. First, if you don't know Christ, if you're not walking in union, communion with Him, would you? Christ offers Himself to you now. He invites you to come and eat to come and drink, to come and be wrapped in His royal, righteous robes. He invites you to come and receive the crown of beauty, the oil of gladness, and the garment of praise. Would you put your faith in the Lord Jesus and know that He will stand by you, save you, deliver you, and bring you safely into His heavenly kingdom? It is yours for the taking, my friend. Would you come? And lastly, to my fellow pilgrims. It's been a hard year. Next year may be hard as well. 
and the year after that, and the one after that. We don't really know what the future holds. That's partly true. Because we do know the one who is currently, as we speak, ruling over the present and has promised to guide the future as he has the past. The Lord Jesus sits enthroned above all creation and he is guiding it according to his holy will and to its appointed end. His spirit has anointed him for this task and has made him to come and dwell with us and in us. And this is all to the praise of the glory of the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, whatever kind of year or decade or life that you've had, God loves you. God is with you. God has married you and is preparing a place for you. Will you continue to entrust yourself to him and patiently wait for his 